Movies and Booze on Moncrief. Brought to you by Lidl's award-winning wine range. Lidl. More for you. Enjoy alcohol sensibly. Visit drinkaware.ie. 53106 is our text number that will cost you 30 cent. Uh, you can uh, follow us on Twitter or send us an email to afternoon at newstalk.com. Uh, you are listening to The Moncrief Show on Newstalk and it is time for Movies and Booze. Our hashtag is Hacker Movies for a fairly obvious set of reasons. We are joined uh, once again by Esther McCarthy, Mick O'Connell and Fanula Jones. Good afternoon to you all. Good afternoon. Hi, Sean. Fanula's just re- remaining at a stony remove from us all. Uh, has her line gone down? Uh, I'm so sorry. I'm oh, here. Oh, there you are. You? Oh, did you just drift off? Sorry. I just... <laughs> Was there something interesting happening out the window? No, afraid not. Just traffic as per usual. All right. Okay. It's up by 80% or something, according to the news bulletin just there. Uh, so, Mick, what, uh, what kind of wines will we be quaffing today? We have two really interesting ones, actually. We've got an Assertico from Crete. So that's a white wine from from the island of Crete, obviously one of the Greek islands where we would all love to be holidaying. And then we have a red wine, a Pinot Noir from a a little-known region just north of Burgundy called Champlit. Um, But this is a Burgundian-style Pinot Noir from a chap called Pascal Onrio, who's an elderly man and does absolutely everything by hand, which is quite an interesting um, drop. So they should be quite fun. What would you normally not be doing by hand? Oh, everything in the winery, you would try your best to use machines. But just, just as an example... He even glues the labels onto the wines himself by hand. Um, so, like, usually that would happen on a bottling line. I mean, nearly everybody would do that on a bottling line. So he literally does thousands of bottles himself by hand, glues them on with the old Pritt stick. Is it just because he's a, a terrible miser or, or is he, you know, wrong in the head? Uh, why is he <laughs> putting himself through all this? I think he just likes the idea of being in control of absolutely every step of the process. And you can you can tell it in the wines. The wines are really, really carefully crafted. And, and like, I don't think he's mad at all. Right, okay. Control freak, though. <laughs> probably. Is he a married man? <laughs> <laughs> Going for too much detail there, probably. Uh, and uh, Army of the Dead, uh, the, the, uh, Esther, it's a zombie heist movie. Uh, that's, is that a specific genre? It is now, and yeah. I'm kind of very good with that. Yeah, I'm kind of going, why didn't we have more of these? Um, yeah, this is a huge film, actually, Sean. It's a, 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 one of Netflix's biggest budget kind of offerings yet. And it's working with a director by the name of Zack Snyder, who I'm not a fan of. Um, he's made a lot of very big films like Watchmen, 300, um, and made a couple of uh, the DC Comics um, uh, films, including mm. Justice League, quite recently. Oh, so God, he's one, yeah. here... Yeah, I know. Oh, so he's responsible for the 19-hour version that that that's now on. You can now you can watch. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. if you okay. really want to do that with your life, yeah. yeah. Not so not a filmmaker I've ever been bored on board with, but I was kind of excited for this because you know I'm a fool for a zombie film, and I love a good heist movie, and I thought that's a really good idea. Um, he's a filmmaker, I suppose. I mean. He makes Michael Bay look subtle and nuanced, let's say. He's a very bombastic, <laughs> right. um, very bombastic director. Now, I wouldn't have a subtle bone in his body, but I kind of thought maybe that would work for a zombie heist movie, you know? Maybe that archness and that slightly over the topness might actually work well for that. So we'll be talking about that a little later on. Right. And and, and the other uh, movie today is a documentary and about uh, a very significant moment in our time in Irish history, The Eighth. 
Yeah, this one is good. It's um, three female filmmakers um, working together to kind of put a very comprehensive documentary together, actually. A very, it not only sets out the stall of the weeks leading up to the um, repealing of the Eighth Amendment here nearly three years ago now, would you believe? Um, but it also really contextualises, I think, Ireland's social history, um, its political history with abortion and, and even its economic history. So it's it's very well put together. This I should point out, it's not available this weekend. They're actually releasing it next Tuesday, the 25th of May, which is the third anniversary of um, the repealed referendum day. So it's it's next Tuesday. You need to be watching out for this one. On right. OK. Platforms. Yeah. Interesting one in the sense of does it attempt to be neutral? Can you be neutral? I, I mean, in fact, I asked uh, I asked one of the filmmakers, Maeve O'Boyle, that very question last week. And she said they were very, um, you know, they're very much coming from a point of view on it, mm. um, which would be pro-choice. Uh, but they do speak to people. They do speak to people on the other side and they do give them a decent amount of airtime, actually, I would say. Um, her rationale for that was you needed context. Um, you needed to see you know what the stakes were for for both camps and uh, i think they do a good job of, of doing that actually and of course like if you'd i mean i was almost tense going back to this sean because mm. i remember how much friction there was at the time and how it dominated um our current affairs and public debate and people you know families were having rows over this some of this stuff and i was like oh my god do i want to go there again you know um so i think they did have to show what was at stake for people and you know how this was really going to impact on women's lives and i think by bringing in the no side and giving them a, a decent hearing not a it's not a it's not a 50 50 it's not a broadcast this one it's a film um so it's coming from a point of view but i think it really reminds you what the stakes were then yeah uh, and it, it should be added that uh, um well somebody in my house who you know has already watched it and, and she said she uh, cried three times uh, during the oh. course of it so it's quite it is apparently quite moving uh, as it is well. quite moving yeah uh, absolutely and, and Fanula we'll start with some good news Hocus Pocus 2 is coming that is of course if you're a fan of Hocus Pocus 1 yeah I was going to say good news very much up for debate um, but it is coming this has been kind of teased for I don't know how many years like rumours and fake movie posters have been circulating uh, for so long since the release of the first film but it was confirmed yesterday that Hocus Pocus 2 is coming to Disney Plus uh, autumn 2022 no official date yet um, and uh, the three original Sanderson sisters so that's Bette Midler Sarah Jessica Parker and Kathy Najimy they are all signed on to reprise uh, their role as Winifred, uh, Sarah and Mary Sanderson, respectively. So not a lot that we know about plot. Um, seems to, like, it looks like it's going to follow a similar enough format. Um, three girls accidentally summon the witches again to modern day Salem and hijinks ensues. It's a different director, so we might get a kind of different movie altogether. But I mean, I don't know. Again, I kind of feel like we talked about this a couple of weeks ago with another movie, but this is a decent cash grab for them and the people who are into it will watch it and they'll probably enjoy it regardless. And Disney will get big streaming numbers, so they probably won't care content-wise. Yes. I don't know. I can't remember. When did the first one come out? Oh, 1900 and Frozen to Death. I do not have that to hand. Yeah. But, like, it's you're talking 
it's at least a 20 year gap but I would exactly. I would hazard a guess at more um, and Bette Midler had said that she was well up for doing it and she wanted to do it and this is her words not mine uh, she wanted to do it before she was a corpse so they got in like right on time I would say um, so I'd still watch it like I'm here giving out I'm absolutely yeah. still going to watch Jeez, it what, but, uh, what age is Bette Midler at this stage of the game in is her that 70s a, that's an so. ageist question I shouldn't have even considered that <laughs> Uh, you asked it, not me. Hocus Pocus one was in nineteen ninety three, so yeah, okay. you were right. So that you was. Do the there. Uh, I, there I you won't go. bother it, but yeah, many many years ago, uh, sort of yeah. thing. Uh, right, so Mick, which uh, wine will we talk about first? I think we should do the the white first, which is um, the Assertico from the family called Lira Rackus on Crete. I mean, it's a this is a really really interesting style of wine, and will appeal to to people who like kind of nice crisp fresh like Sauvignon Blanc, Albarino, Picpoul, those kind of things. Um, Assertico is a is a weird one. It's spelled A S S Y R T I K O, and hasn't hasn't really hit the mainstream yet at all and it's probably because it's impossible to spell that's the most likely <laughs> yes uh, assessment on it but, but also but, greek wines you don't well you do see some but you don't see a lot of them in, in, in ireland it's it's really true it's really true i think some of it is because the, there's one island there that is really famous for high quality wines and that's santorini and santorini tends to make really quite expensive wines so there there aren't kind of entry level wines for people to to get in at a kind of base level if you see what i mean and i suppose with this particular wine that is actually what they're able to do so this is like 17 euros and and is fairly widely available in independent wine merchants but it's Again, it appeals to the same kind of person who likes uh, New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc and all of those kind of things. So th- there's actually got quite a bit of mass appeal with a wine like this. Um, if if only they they could think of a jazzy kind of spelling for it or, or mm. some sort of mnemonic that we could all remember with, it would be perfect. But If they put but, bay in the title, that would sell it. That always exactly. Works. That's that's all that's required. Yeah. Funny on on mentioning bay, they have another grape that they do called Daphne, and I think someone will be listening and is Greek and will correct me. But I think Daphne actually in their dialect means bay, as in bay leaf, ah. and that particular wine is so herbal and it literally smells like dried herbs, like bay, like laurel. Mm. So it's a they're a really fascinating producer, small family, and um, mainly organic. On the northern side of, of Crete, which is the cooler side, because there's a little bit of um, of kind of altitude that they get there, as well as the sea influence, but really crisp, bright, kind of apple style here as well, with a bit of citrus. And this is this is a lot of mass appeal. And again, difficult one to spell and to say, but <laughs> when you when when you get a glass of this, you'll be back for more. Right. Okay. And and uh, uh, what's the uh, alcohol volume in it, and how much does it so cost? 13% alcohol okay. and it's 17 euros and you'll get it in places like Green Man Wines, um, 64 wines out in um, Glass 2. So like I know Martins and Fairview have done it in the past. It, it's it's fairly widely available in the in the independent wine merchants around Ireland. Yeah, okay. And it's, it's Citrico, A-S-S-Y-R-T-I-K-O. So uh, the spelling is... Uh, Bit of a tricky one, but maybe if you just ask for the if you just ask for the wine from Crete, they probably only have the one anyway. There, there won't be many others. There yeah. definitely won't be many others. Okay, well that, uh, that that's probably narrows it down. Then would have thought. So Esther, <laughs> um, uh, what uh, movie would you like to talk about first? 
Let's do zombies, John, will we? I think okay. we need some zombies in our lives. Right. Army Zom- of the Dead. Yeah. Zombies rob on banks after this. You ready to play? There's $200 million in the vault beneath the strip. With a 32-hour window to get it out. Find the safe. This should be a simple in and out. It's not too late to go back. They're not what you think they are. They're smarter. They're faster. They're organized. There you go. That's uh, Army of the Dead. Uh, And uh, as you can hear, there's lots of explosions uh, and uh, dramatic music in it. Uh, Okay, so Esther, uh, what's this all about? Hey, um, you know what? I was Googling how to kill zombies this week and I realised how much I love my job, Sean, first of all. Um, Because there's a whole uh, scene in this film where, you know, you're reminded that you have to kill zombies by splattering their brains and, and lobbing off their brains. And to do that... You know, when as clean cut as possible, preferably maybe a samurai sword or something like that. So um, right down my street this and right down Zack Snyder Street because he can go full bombastic with this. Um, It's a great bit of fun and I think it works mostly for me, not because of his filmmaking style. I'm still on the fence with that, Uh, but it's a very good looking film, but it's also a really well cast film. There's a great motley crew of characters in this one. Um, particularly the winner for me is uh, Tig Notaro, the uh, US comedian who plays a, a helicopter pilot who just steals every scene she's in. She's right, very, she's very great. funny. Yeah. Oh, she's great. Lovely, lovely casting work here. Um, yeah, she, so she has the ability to appear in a crap movie and kind of somehow, you know, let you infer, yeah, I know it's crap, but, you know, the money was good. Totally, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But she's kind of being herself in it as well. So, so actually, they're using her strengths. So it is actually really good casting. Um, this, though, for me, the running time's a problem. It's two and a half hours long. I'm sorry. If you can't kill an army of zombies in mm. under two hours, you're not doing your movie right. Um, but other than that, I really enjoyed this. I think it's great fun. Uh, so, like, it's his in-your-face style, very much evident here again. Um from from the off, really, like it unfolds following. You love the plotting in the show. It unfolds following a military accident um, that unleashes this deadly zombie attack. So the military are transporting um, through the deserts around Las Vegas. This um, pa- this van, and they're told, "Don't open it. Don't do anything. Don't go near it." Um, and they have a car accident. The people, tra- the military, transporting it, and they don't leave on time. And it turns out there are zombies. Um, in the van and they're making their way for Los Angeles Uh, within a matter of hours they're running rampant in Vegas and the city has to be cut off from the rest of the world and basically is a no-go zone for anyone Mm. with a shred of sense Um, but this uh, kind of moustache twitching casino boss who you heard in the clip there uh, a guy named Tanika he has a, a proposition for this group of criminal mercenaries that Dave um, Batista is tasked with putting together because he's from Vegas originally and he has a background in petty crime. Um, so the job is a, simp- a simple enough one, really, you know, just avoid the zombies, try not to get out by any of them, break into the vaults beneath the strip, uh, you know, manage to open the safe, get the 200 million in cash. And there's a helicopter at the top of a, a very large building waiting to uh, take you away and get away before the zombies get to strike. What could go uh, wrong? So, 
Yeah. What could go wrong? There's another complication, though. They've only got 32 hours before the US government is going to uh, plant a nuclear bomb on Las Vegas. Because uh, mm. there isn't enough going on already. Yeah. So they're up against time. Uh, the government has decided that's it. We're done. You know, we can't get in there. We can't save people anymore. We're just going to nuke it because that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Uh, so it's very over the top. And the cast, as I say, are great. Tignataro stands out for me. Batista has that, you know, blend of empathy and action man kind of bufferness, I suppose, that, that makes him perfect for a lead role here. Uh, there's a kind of a backstory about him having a difficult relationship with his daughter. But that's, you know, that's just when they're setting up the other mm. explosions, you get a bit of that. Um, so, <laughs> you know, the, the stakes are high and the... Uh, Fun is great, and I think his his dominant style, Snyder, really suits this. And it's interesting to see him going back to his almost to his roots, actually, because his very first directorial debut was a remake of um, Dawn of the Dead back yeah. in two thousand and four. So I think I would like to see more of this from him. Um, but my God, like it does it drag at times. Like there just isn't enough story here to justify two and a half hours there mm. just isn't you know so we're not talking about the greatest zombie movies ever made which for me are Shaun of the dead and Zombieland, which i think is 89 minutes does its job to perfection um but this is a lot of fun and it's a step in the right direction and i have to say the money is all up on screen it looks fabulous as well and the effects are great people yeah you know people get lynched in all sorts of colorful brutal, gory and imaginative ways here, which is kind of what you want from a film like this. Okay, that's good. What are the zombies like? Uh, It's often struck me in zombie movies that you're watching a zombie movie and you're going, my five-year-old daughter could have killed that zombie. It's moving so slowly. You know, in World War Z, they they were like hard to get. They were like rabid zombies. What kind of zombies are these? I know, right? Just run, like, lads, run. Yes, faster <laughs> um, than they that, are. You know, it's That's easy. what I love about Zombieland. There's a whole sequence of that. Like, come on, you know how to, you know how to beat zombies by now. Um, these are these are interesting zombies. First of all, there's a lot of them. So if one of them gets their hands on you, you're going to be kind of engulfed by a lot of people very quickly. And they do some really good set pieces in that regard. But there's also a form of kind of super zombie involved Sean where yeah so this we're putting forward a new idea here so they go into this building uh and they come out transformed into kind of super super zombies not sure what their superpowers were but they're definitely bigger faster and more evil um so that's maybe a whole spin-off coming there and actually I think we're getting I think there's already been a tv series announced for this not sure if it's on Netflix as well, which is Netflix has this film. You can watch it on Netflix tonight. Um, but there is a TV series spinoff already on the way called Army of the Dead Lost Vegas, which I think is quite clever. Right. Um, and okay. I think it would work very well, actually, in episodic telly as well. I think that's going to be a lot of fun. So, yeah, this is going to be people are going to like this. People are going to enjoy it. I think it's what people need at the moment as well. Just the kind of epic set pieces um, and a bit of knowing humor, you know. Uh, the uh, do, do they explain where the zombies came from in the first place or indeed where the super zombies came from? No, I'm afraid <laughs> no. <laughs> Basic question. 
I yeah, I was wondering. You know, the ones in the military van at the start, they were never explained where they were. Maybe they were coming from outer space or something, Sean. I don't know. Maybe we'll have to wait for the prequel. By van? That that is suspension of disbelief uh, uh, to the extreme. uh, uh, I would have thought. I mean, it is a good existential question, isn't it? Yes. Who, Who was the first zombie? Yeah. Because they couldn't have been eaten, right? And, and like in, in the film, do the people go, oh, my God, it's a zombie. Uh, and don't question how that happened. Uh, um, rather than, oh, I don't know. A few basic questions. You wouldn't questions. have a movie otherwise. <laughs> the movie's long enough to include that question and have somebody answer it. It only takes two minutes. Uh, right, OK, well, that's uh, it sounds like a bit of fun, though, nonetheless. It is. That's, uh, it is, and it looks good, and it's nice. I, you know, we're all pining for the cinema at this stage, and it's nice to see... That kind of big action thing, even if we're watching it at home, you know, yeah. that kind of big, big scale action stuff that, that we haven't gotten to see. I'm missing blockbuster season, John. I never thought I'd say it, but My here word, we are. Yeah. Uh, somebody's texting to say apparently uh, the aforementioned Zack Snyder banned chairs from the set because he thought they would hamper creativity from the actors. I read that. Yeah, I thought it was barmy as well. When I yeah, read it. yeah, they just make you tired. Uh, uh, more than it wouldn't make him more energetic it'd make him more go I want to have a sit down in between my takes I mean surely if you're a zombie and you're already moving slow and you don't get to sit down between <laughs> yeah. takes that's gonna like make you more useless it's just like prop you up against a wall because uh, you're a, a, a zombie uh, anyway our hashtag is hacker movies uh, Kremlins uh, get it being one and uh, the recently deceased rich Nigerian prince and me uh, make, uh, <laughs> make somebody's asking uh, about Cypriot wine uh, excellent and great value is it anywhere in the shops here oh I don't think I've seen any wines from Cyprus at all here that's terrible I'm sure someone will text in going obviously there's this really famous one but I, I literally can't think of a single one at all Right, okay, but it's, I suppose the smaller countries, maybe production is limited and there might be a big domestic market for it anyway. It's, it's, it's probably that thing when in normal times, when we all go there on holidays, we drink bath loads of it. So therefore there's none for export. Yeah. Uh, and Fanula, uh, Billy, uh, people may have seen this story uh, during the week, Billy Porter. Now, it's, it's, uh, these always, uh, stories always strike me as kind of very sad, but, 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 but interesting as well, given that uh, if you read the, the American press, you get this, that uh, Hollywood is this huge woke uh, uh, nirvana where you could just be anything, really. But, uh, but here's an actor who was scared to tell people he was HIV positive for 14 years. Yeah, really sad, especially if you're familiar with, I suppose, Billy Porter and his work. He's obviously starred in Pose for the last three seasons and has won so much praise for that role. And he actually plays um, someone who is HIV positive in the show. But he basically said it was the shame. He said it was debilitating, uh, engulfed him, said he didn't want to say it to uh, his mother because of, in his words, all he'd put her through. She's very religious. Um, and he came out at 16. And uh, eventually he said, you know what, I have to rip off the Band-Aid um, and call her uh, as the show was finishing up because Pose is going into its last series. And he said she got she had a really good response to him and just couldn't get over that he'd been carrying this around for whatever it was, 14 years, because he was actually diagnosed back in June 2007. So, yeah, really sad. And he said it wasn't a fear that, like, his status was going to affect him in terms of work or whatever, that he was going to be exposed, in inverted commas. It was the shame that happened in the first place, which, again, really sad. But I think this interview and this kind of honesty is going to help so many people and just continue to make progress in the way of kind of dismantling that stigma and that shame for so many others. 
but it, it sounds like from uh, this, though, that uh, at least part of his uh, motivation here was that the mother was very religious and she was part of a religious community and it was her who was going to get the stick rather than him. Yeah, there was that as well, because when he initially came out, there seemed to be a lot of that. She's a a member of a Pentecostal church, and I think she struggled with that a lot. Um, But he had kind of said, oh, I made this pact with myself before uh, that I wouldn't let her die without telling her. Um, And he said, and he was very honest, like brutally honest in this interview where he said, that's what I was waiting for, if I'm being honest. Um, Told her and obviously got a much better reaction than he would have anticipated. And just seems so free now with uh, the knowledge that he's shared this and doesn't have to hide it anymore. Yeah. Oh, well, that's good. And it's good that uh, the the mother responded uh, well to it. Hopefully she's not getting any stick herself uh, if she's still going to that church. You are listening to The Moncrief Show on News Talk. We have to take a break. One more movie, one more wine after this. Every now and then an issue comes before us which challenges us to think about our history. Whether it's the damp cold of the Magdalen laundries or the sundered silence of mother and baby homes being broken. All of these things are connected by the way we as a country have treated women and particularly pregnant women. Women's health is at risk. Women are still in danger. Women are still taking the abortion pill illegally. This government needs to introduce emergency legislation to protect women's lives. And if they don't, we will bring this government down. After decades of uncertainty, the process has started that could herald the biggest change ever in Ireland's law on abortion. There you go. Uh, that's the 8th. It's not uh, available yet, but it will be available uh, next week. I suppose you don't really have to tell us the plot to this one, Esther. No, it's a funny one like that. Um, this is just good old dogged, comprehensive uh, documentary filmmaking, making the absolute most of the, the subjects of the film um, and the most of the fact that they of the access they got and very, very clever use of um archive footage and news coverage, including a very young Michael D. Higgins uh, taking on Father Cleary in a in a talk show at one stage. Uh, my, I don't think it was Today Tonight, but I was also reminded of Today Tonight. Uh, that's kind of the era we're looking at. Um, there's clips in that show in it as well. So this, yeah, this is good. I think it's, it's directed by three people who bring their own strengths to the table. So three female filmmakers. Um, Maeve O'Boyle uh, making her de- directorial debut here, but her background's in film editing, and you can certainly see the standard of editing throughout the film. Um, Lucy Kennedy, who is uh, an investigative journalist, and Aideen Keane, whose background is in production. Uh, so th- I think they're all bringing various strengths here, and they're all certainly filmmakers I'll be watching out for. Um, and what it does is, I suppose, it details the history behind um, Irish campaigners' efforts to remove the constitutional ban on abortion. And it really sets the stakes of what happened in 1983's referendum as well and the fallout for that. And I think, you know, points out how terrified any political party was really to go near to go near the uh, referendum issue again mm. for many decades because of what happened in 1983 um, and, and the cases involved after that. And I think it does that very well. So it sets up the context of this country's social political history in the decades leading up to the referendum three years ago. Um, 
the main focus is on the repeal campaign and you're very much boots on the ground here. They are the documentary makers are going around canvassing with people. So you're getting to know the main protagonists that they work, worked with, but also you're getting to hear the views of people um, on the doorstep. So this is kind of a snapshot of Ireland as well at that time, you know, through the various um, and just our way of expressing ourselves is just really good and it mm-hmm. feeds into the film, I think, here. Um, the two main protagonists, very interesting as well. Um, Andrea Horan, who people would know from as the owner for of Tropical Popical, um, the nail bar and how kind of her interest wasn't in activism at the start, but she actually got drawn into this cause, how you know, a nail salon became kind of a a ground zero in a way for um, some elements of the campaign, especially among younger women. So that's an interesting take. Uh, And then at the opposite end of the spectrum, um, a really interesting and compassionate and and charismatic woman by the name of Alva Smith. Ah, yeah, we've had Alva on the show loads of times. Yeah, yeah, she's she's a rock star. Oh, she's a great subject for a documentary. And, and, and the fact that she's in her 70s now, I think, really feeds into that history. How much trouble we've had with the uh, abortion laws in this country for, for many decades now. So she can really feed into what women have had to do. And she's kind of becomes the main protagonist as the film goes on. So you become very invested in her kind of wanting to see history change, I suppose, after so many years of disappointment. So it's very, very good. This mm. um, do, Does it go into, sorry, Tendra, does it go into yeah. kind of because, you know, the, the the reasons for it, I suppose, you know, people would know the reasons for it. But with those protagonists, did they feel and how did they come to the conclusion that perhaps, yes, there, there had been a change in the mindset of the Irish public, uh, given that, you know, a couple of decades before it would have been the idea of legalising abortion in this country would have been anathema. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the death of Savita Halepanavar is um, a very much a turning point in the film and looms very large in the film, rightfully so. And you're reminded of the protests and, and people taking to the streets following that. Uh, but they talk about strategy a lot as well. You're you're in the offices and uh, when they're planning these meetings and demonstrations and, you know, they do talk about strategy a hell of a lot uh, on both sides, actually. And um, the need to get the middle ground, I think that was where they saw potential victory and to talk to people. Very much like, I suppose, the marriage referendum a few years beforehand, you know, to talk, to converse with people rather than shout at them and to, mm. to listen to people's fears and doubts and just have that conversation with them. And that's very much, I think, how everyone involved feels the referendum was won. Like they spend a lot of time with that in the latter half of the film in particular. So, uh, yeah, so you do, you get a sense of sea change, It it you know. It is what it is about, but I think it's kind of Ireland microcosm in a way. And, and it goes into, the, of course, the Catholic Church and and mother and baby homes and all of the wrongs that were, were done um, to Irish society over the years. So it's a very, very fleshed out film, even though it is about one particular referendum. I think, you know, I, I went to, to be on, completely honest with you, I said, do I want to go there so soon? Because it was, you know, it was so much at the time and it was such an emotional experience for people at the time Uh, but I think what this is does really successfully is it's almost a social snapshot of Ireland in the last 30-40 years I think you know even even Mm -hmm. though it is about one thing as I say on on various rental platforms um, including Volta, IFI at Home um, released by Breakout Pictures and streaming from Tuesday which is the third anniversary of the referendum
Yeah, and and obviously, it, as uh, as you said earlier, it does take a point of view, though it does give uh, uh, some oxygen to the people who are on the uh, on the other side uh, of that debate. It, were they able to use much contemporary footage in the sense of was there you know you know behind the scenes footage of of Alva Smith at all planning things out? Yeah, there's loads of that. This is a well thought out film. This is they, the the filmmakers involved have been talking about making it for many years, um, and I think the conversation first came up after. Um, the Savita Halepinarver's death in 2012, if, I, if I'm right. Um, so this had been in the planning, you know, they were on the ground, uh, boots on the ground with the activists from 2017. They started shooting this. So ah. this wasn't a, a let's look back now and grab what footage we can. Mm. Uh, this is really, really thought out and, and properly properly good um, documentary filmmaking. I think two of the women as well, two of the female directors were based in New York for a while and have, uh, I know Maeve Boyle has has edited HBO documentaries and has done a lot of long form filmmaking. Um, So these are, you know, very new names ostensibly as filmmakers, but very, very experienced people who've worked abroad and have, I suppose, that, that eye on the country as an Irish person abroad as well, which I think gives you a unique, um, point of view as well you know so uh, wh- very why, good this. why three I mean are all three women directors on this yeah, they're, yeah. it's co-directed by the three of them yeah it is unusual yeah and I I know for sure one of them's a first time but they're as I say they're all steeped in um in in filmmaking like Maeve Boyle is, is a very experienced editor Lucy Kennedy's background uh not that Lucy Kennedy yeah. this is the um investigative uh journalist Lucy Kennedy and Aideen Kane who was also based in the US for a while I think as well um has a background in production so she would be the the producer's producer's hat but I think they they just all felt as they were pulling this together and, and making it that they would all co-direct it. And it's uh, it's been a good choice, I think, for them. Right. They all bring their own okay. strengths to the table. Uh, Shane wants to know, will you be uh, reviewing A Quiet Place 2 next week? Well, I don't know if we'll have it here because I think we're waiting for cinemas to open. So, um, ah. you know, there's stuff. Yeah, there's stuff getting released now, like cinemas opened in the UK this week. So there's, you know, Ireland and the UK are treated as one territory as mad as that sounds, given our history (laughs) in movie terms, but we are treated as one territory. Release dates are generally nearly always the same. Um, And so it's kind of it all gets a bit mad in scheduling terms when one 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 country is open and not the other, as has happened a few times over the last um, 14 months. So, you know, I don't I don't think a quiet place will be going streaming. I think we'll probably see a delayed release for that and a lot of other titles. and when the cinemas do open, I mean, God help the schedulers, the amount of stuff yeah, that's going to be coming out. Well, also as well, though, I mean, like A Quiet Place too, which I, I, I don't know who who put money into that. Didn't Obviously, Netflix didn't put money into, into the second one then. So they have no say whether it goes to a cinema or not. No, no. Um, I'm, and I'll tell you, Sean, I, that when one of the last interviews that was cancelled in March last year, uh, it was never confirmed, but I was talking with the people releasing A Quiet Place 2 about the possibility of getting uh, an interview with Killian Murphy. That was March of last year. Oh, my God. Yeah, it was Crikey. due out, I think. The film was due out in April, so. Yeah, yeah. I've, I, I, I have, like, because uh, author sometimes, especially if it's like a really, really big book and, and, and the author is, you know, English or, or American or something. And I've interviewed authors who would have published the book a year before uh, and they can barely remember what's in it. 
uh, for like actors is like, so tell us about A Quiet Place too. Yeah, I don't know, really. It's, you know, it's all gone now. I've made four I movies uh, uh, since that time. Uh, I've, inter- I've interviewed Banked from the Dublin Film Festival in February 2020. Before there was ever a pandemic, <laughs> and I'm going, how can I even write those up now? Like the world is a different place. Yeah. You know? uh, that documentary is called The Eighth, uh, and uh, of course, and uh, as uh, Esther said, it's it's av- it'll be available on various platforms from next Tuesday. Is that right, Esther? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, yeah. including uh, Volta. And uh, and uh, somebody on Twitter, Dave on Twitter, because there was a question about Cypriot wine, uh, says Cypriot wine back in the day, Othello, a robust red, grand, but a strange flavour. Uh, I'm taking from that day when you say uh, a, a robust red, meaning, you know, it was a tenor. Uh, so Mick, tell us about uh, our second <laughs> wine today. Not not a robust red at all. This second one. This is quite a quite a light, elegant style. It's a it's a Pinot Noir, and it's from a small village just north of Burgundy called Champlit, and it's by a chap called Pascal Onrio, who who like we said earlier does absolutely everything by hand. So he, he farms organically. He does all of the wine making himself, even to the point where he moves the wine around the winery doing using buckets and things like that as opposed to as opposed to pumps so this is properly properly hands-on stuff uh, and like i said he even does as much as gluing the labels on himself so um very very handmade juicy bright kind of tart red fruit this is a this is a red wine that would suit really well going into the fridge um so this is the kind of thing that i would put into the door of the fridge say a half an hour before i wanted to serve it and what that really does is it brings up the kind of refreshing nature of the wine makes it have a little bit more bite and actually because of that makes it quite food friendly in terms of style and and you'd go for kind of lighter meat dishes with this kind of thing but this is this is delicious and will appeal to people who are into both but will also appeal to people who are into slightly bigger Pinot Noirs from from further south in Burgundy itself. But €23 Euros and available from Franks and Greenman Wines and Station to Station. So a couple of a couple of kind of indie merchants. Right. OK. Really, really and, and, you know, so a Pinot Noir, I suppose, is a range on a Pinot Noir. A Pinot Noir can be, you know, uh, one end kind of a bit wimpy. Uh, uh, is this kind of in the middle? This is kind of in the middle. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This is definitely not the lightest kind of style, but it is, I would say, on the lighter side of the scale, light, bright, and and like I said, really refreshing if you chill it down. So this this would be like a really full-bodied right. rosé in some ways. Uh, right, okay. Oh, that's interesting. That's, that's, well, <laughs> not today. Uh, you wouldn't consider <laughs> chilling it down, but maybe at some point in the future there might be some strange glowing orb in the sky. Just put, it, just put it on the windowsill today and you don't need to stick it into the door of the fridge. It's fine. Yes, <laughs> just open the window uh, and and this and it's interesting you kind of all the time there's some new little place that you've never heard of uh that's you know uh, and it, this is northeast of dijon so it's 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 not an is it an area in itself kind of thing it, champlit is yeah. just a village like it's a tiny tiny village um like it's it's almost as close to kind of basel in like switzerland on on the east as it is down to lyon i mean lyon is the I suppose Burgundy kind of runs from Lyon up to Dijon, and then we're talking about an hour's drive northeast of Dijon. So it's in that kind of close enough to Alsace 
neck mm. of the woods. But but yeah, absolutely. With with Pinot Noir in particular, because a lot of the wines in Burgundy are so expensive, people are people are looking out for for kind of value Pinot Noir like this at twenty three euros. And Fanula, there's going to be a share biopic. Uh, now imagine yes. the glitter budget alone on this. Oh, I don't even want to think about it. The environment is crying already. Um, yeah, again, no timeline for this, but it's these biopics just keep like coming out of the woodworks. This one I actually would be interested in, though. Yeah, no, because she has a shared. she has a compelling story. It's yeah. very interesting. Yeah, um, she's co-producing. It's coming from Universal Pictures, and interestingly, it's a uh, the producers of Mamma Mia are actually on board to work on this as well. So that's Judy Kramer and Gary Goldsman. Um, so no doubt it'll be shiny and fun. Uh, also, Eric Roth, one of her friends, uh, people would know him from Forrest Gump and the most recent A Star Is Born adaptation. He's writing the screenplay, and they actually worked together on a uh, Suspect from the 80s I don't right, know if anyone okay. remembers that I do yeah. not I'm too young and youthful um, cannot wait so excited who's going to play Cher though you know what I mean like who plays Cher in a movie about Cher that would be Surely very just different Cher. I'd be kind of nervous though that, that just I know she she, but Cher's a producer on it so she'll have a say as to who plays Cher uh, um, mm. that's kind of I don't know that's a bit weird I think maybe, yeah, you know. I, I can see her just doing it herself, to be honest. Like, why <laughs> let someone else do it if you know you can do the job yourself, you know? Of course I'm young enough you looking are. to do this. Yeah, it's just, <laughs> just back up the plastic surgery truck. Now, I mean, she does still look fantastic and everything, but, um, okay, that's interesting. The uh, the Mamma Mia people would make me nervous because, you know, because there's all stuff about her, uh, about her story when she was with Sonny and all that stuff. That's kind of grim stuff. Um, so that's you very true. You don't want to kind of gloss true. over that. Um, in my mind, though, and in my heart, the Mamma Mia film adaptations are untouchable and unique works of art. So I am, I'd be confident, I think, that they'll pull this out of the bag. Indeed. Fanola Jones being highbrow to the very end. Uh, Fanola, <laughs> Esther and Mick, thank you all uh, very much. That's our lot uh, for today. Kieran's up next on The Hard Shoulder on Newstalk. Our production team today, Maurice O'Sullivan, Aidan McKelvey and Mike, and sorry, Peter Malloy, I should say. We'll talk to you on Monday at two o'clock. Have a lovely weekend. Movies and Booze on Moncrief. Brought to you by Lidl's award-winning wine range. Lidl. More for you. Enjoy alcohol sensibly. Visit drinkaware.ie.